0: talk is Jericho's, the pot of thunder and rock and roll and thank god it's Friday because that means it's time for the Duff McKagan joke of the week Chris Jericho Duff McKagan calling you
1: man listen breaking news uh yeah uh the toilets were stolen at the police station yeah police have nothing to go on thank you very much (laughs)
0: all right that was good Duff's been on a roll lately he's a little bit on fire I know you laughed at that one thanks to Duff he never lets us down And thanks to everyone who's been watching the Winnipeggers on my Facebook page and YouTube channel. New episodes every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And last night, it was songs you almost know the words to. Dave, Ribo and I shared all the song lyrics that we used to get wrong as kids. Some funny ones like the Elton John classic, Get Back Copycat. Uh, That's what I thought it was called. Ribo used to sing Bring Me a Hired Love for Steve Winwood. And Dave's got a few good ones, too. I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Come sing along to the wrong lyrics, have a couple laughs. We even got a girl in a bikini this week. Join us on the Winnipeggers on my Facebook page and YouTube channel. And speaking of music, I got two great guests today who are sharing some really cool stories about the rise and fall of the 80s L.A. metal scene. Tom Bojour, co-founder of Revolver Magazine, and Rich Beanstalk, former editor of Guitar World. Uh, they interviewed a couple hundred musicians, managers, producers, roadies, and label execs for their new book, Nothing But a Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion. They talk to everyone from Ozzy to Poison to Skid Row to Warrant to Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue, uh, lesser-known bands like Tough and Lizzie Borden uh, to detail the rise and fall of the 80s metal scene on the Sunset Strip, share some of the amazing stories they uncovered, including Slash's failed edition for Poison, think about that, Sebastian Bach's shocking first night with Skid Row and the debauchery that ensued, The weird practical joke that Dawkins played on producer Tom Worman and the Warrant and Guns N' Roses flyer feud. That's right. Uh, Duff was going to kick their asses, by the way. (laughs) He's not all about jokes, guys. They talk about the explosion of the 80s scene and the Sunset Strip culture and whether the rise of grunge in bands like Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, Nirvana really played a big role in the demise of the metal scene and music. This is truly sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's the stuff of legend, and you're about to hear all about it now with Tom Bozier and Rich Beanstalk. It's going to be nothing but a good time on Talk Is Jericho. I got to be honest, one of the best books I've read in a long time is uh, is Nothing But a Good Time by uh, Tom Bozier and uh, Richard Beanstalk. Thank you. And, it's funny because there's a lot of books written about rock and roll about certain time frames and a lot of books written kind of about the 80s, which was a glorious time for rock and roll. So when we have a mutual friend, Richard I think Pete Fornatale, who uh, yes has been my collaborator for years, kind of said you should check out this book and a couple of my friends had sent me pictures and stuff. So I don't really know what to expect. and then when you open this book and just see like, oh my gosh, right off the bat. You have this list of people that you've interviewed for the book, and it's just off the chain, ridiculously expansive, of 250 people plus or whatever it is. First of all, congratulations on a great book that entails the entire history of kind of the L.A. scene. Second of all, how did you come up with the idea to do this project, and how did you get it started to get all these people involved?
2: Well, Tom and I both are Guitar World magazine alumnus. Uh, okay. we, we, that's where we met uh, about 25 years ago, actually. And so we've worked, we have worked together there for many years, over a decade, and then we've just worked together on and off on other things since then. Uh, but back in the guitar world days when we were in the office, I mean, Tom and I, this is the music we grew up on, the music that we love, the music that we're obsessed with. So, we basically would always just have these insane hair metal conversations. And you know, at some point, like many years ago, the, the discussion came up about whether to do a book like this. And I think uh, we were both a little bit scared to take it on because because of our fandom, we knew like that's a rabbit hole we were going to crawl into and then and then die and never. <laughs> so we just put it off. And then about four years ago was when we had the conversation let's do this and and so that was really when we started it so it was it was a good i mean we handed in the book about a year ago so it was a, a solid 3 years of work
1: and and in the beginning basically what you have to sort of do is leverage whatever relationships you have to get the interviews you know to to get people to actually talk to you when you don't have a book deal yet right so you have yeah. you know that was the the sort of the first 6 months Is a little bit the trickiest part where you're like basically banking on the fact that doing Guitar World and I I started Revolver magazine, Mm. so I did that for ten years. So all of those relationships, people know you enough that when you put in the call, like, "Hey, we're working on this book," that like there's enough of a trust element there that they'll get on the phone with you. Which and it's kind of a lot to ask of people, you know, like they're not promoting something, they they don't know how how it's going to end up if it's ever going to come out and stuff. But people were really. Generous with their time. Stephen Piercy from Rat was really generous. A couple of the producers, like Tom Warman, who did like all the Motley Crue stuff and, you know, did a really great interview. um, Some guys from Dock. And so that was the real beginning was like getting a foothold Mm -hmm. before we had the deal and being able to get enough people. You know, we probably talked to about 50 people to be able to write the chapters that enabled us to then do the book. So that was the really. Like where you're you're throwing hail marys a lot of the time, like
0: well, it's also typical Hollywood where you know who else is involved, yeah. And to get enough names to be involved to get to the tipping point to where now everybody wants to be involved. So who was kind of the first big name that you had where you could go, hey, so and so did it. So now it's like, wow, David Lee Roth wants to do it now because so and so did it, or maybe it was David Lee Roth that was first. So who were
2: some of those big names that you got that were able to to influence the rest of the book? I think, you know, I, I will say, I mean, Tom mentioned Stephen Piercy and and Stephen Piercy came on the first day, actually. He mm. was oddly enough, he was the second interview that we did. The first one I I believe was Marshall Burl, who was Rat's yeah, manager back in the and that was just random, like reaching out to him and he, he responded. And then later that day, Stephen was there. So that helped. And I think Tom spoke to JJ French early on, you know, having twisted sister on board doesn't hurt the docking guys were already there. So we started to sort of amass it. I mean, not to, I'm certainly not saying to sort of toot our own horns. But I think that early on, like we were just leaning more on our backgrounds. more than the guys that were involved in like the guitar world thing, but also we both write for Rolling Stone and Billboard and all these other places. So I think people saw that as legitimate and that helped a lot.
1: And also some uh, business people came on early and we really wanted to get them, their perspectives anyway, but like getting Jason Flom who like signed, you know, all those bands to Atlanta, everybody, everybody. And it's still like, he, you know, he signed Greta Van Fleet recently. And Mm -hmm. he's like, so like, once you get like him and we got Cliff Bernstein really early, like for who manages Metallica and managed everybody. And once you get like those guys too, it sends a signal to the artists that you're going deep, that you know what you're doing, that like respected people are talking to you and that you're not going to mainly, I think for a lot of the artists that you're not just going to ask them the same five right, of course, questions. Of course. And that's always
0: the secret to having a good interview. It's one of the reasons why my podcast has lasted as long as it has. Is I don't want the same answers. You know, you yeah. want to kind of delve deeper, and that's what you guys did, which was so cool. Because once again, you had so many names that we can get it. Because I'm a, a, a aficionado of this scene too. But to me, I think it's one of those things that, like, I remember I was talking to somebody about Beatlemania once and he was like listen if you weren't there you don't really get just how big it was and i think it's the same for you know this this scene you could call it hair metal you could call it glam you could call it the la scene but just that time frame from like 81 to 91 just how huge and massive the heavy metal scene was did you guys like and obviously you knew that cuz you lived it too but kind of going back to that time frame were you amazed and kind of forgot like holy shit like Motley Crue was f- huge like you forget just how huge Motley Crue was I mean they're big now but then it was like almost a religion of of how people just flocked to this band more than almost any
1: other one I think the the thing with MTV particularly is like what you get reminded during this book is that that the people in these these bands weren't just successful they were famous and that is not something that really happens that much with rock musicians at all anymore this is like what you're saying it was this era where you know d Snyder talks about it early on of like like twisted sisters been knocking around for 10 years before they finally get their break and i think he probably in a weird way would have just wanted to have a platinum record and be like okay i made it right. But suddenly he's famous like tv famous the guys in poison the guys in motley crew and you know even later on in the in the era like gunner nelson was talking to me and he's like you know it got to the point where like i could go to the mall or my brother could go to the mall if we went together like he's like he's like i'm not kidding there was a riot like it was actual Beatlemania, like where they had to actually on their tour this is a bit of an aside but it's a really funny thing in the book they go out on tour and they literally have to keep adding pa like wattage because the scream screams are so loud are right? so yeah. loud but i don't think people are able to look back and at a time where like this was the thing like it was the thing that was happening and you turn on mtv and this was it nothing can be this massive again
0: you know and i think you're right because it was you know gosh it's so crazy because even though it was only 30 years ago it was still 30 years ago and how much times have changed since then because i remember too like i was really into nelson when they first came out i actually told matthew and gunner this i kind of modeled my look after them and i was also a diehard metallica fan anthrax fan all that stuff maiden but something about nelson just grabbed me and it was kind of like you said, like girls just going crazy and going to shopping malls. And I'm sure you kind of still get that now, but are there even shopping malls to go to for these, you know, <laughs> yeah, for this yeah. to happen? So like we said, even though it was in our lifetimes, it's from a time frame that people like our kids will never understand mm-hmm. what that was like. And it was so close, but it was a galaxy ago.
2: Yeah. And I mean, Tom and I have talked about the fact that there was that period from like 1988 to 1991, where like, every Saturday night at midnight, like you were there watching Headbangers Ball to see like, yeah. what the new video was. And like, everybody knew what that new video was on Monday morning. Like, you know, and that speaks to sort of this whole idea of the monoculture not existing anymore. But it, you know, it, this is another... Aspect of, of how it is different now when you look at this music because people who were into this music back then were just insane about this music, you know, the same way I was and Tom was and and you were. And like mm-hmm. you knew everything about it and you just needed to know everything about it. You picked up every issue of Circus and Hip Raider and Rip and Faces and Metal Edge and whatever it was. <laughs> and like you watched Hard 30 and Hard 60 and Headbangers Fall you know, those awful like VHS cassettes of like, yeah. I forget what those were called, the, you'd rent them. Heavy Metal Mania or something yeah, like, like that. Yeah, like all that stuff. And and so hard and heavy, like that kind of stuff. That was it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but it's just like, and I don't think, like, I know that's the way I was, but um, I know that I I wasn't the only kid like that. Like, that's the way the fans were about this stuff. And so I think that's what makes this period really special too. And that's what we really wanted to sort of get across in the book, like the excitement and also writing this in a way that we know the people who really want to read this book are people like us that know are going, coming into it knowing a lot and having a lot of really deep and intense feelings sometimes about this stuff. Mm-hmm. So we wanna give them something that maybe they hadn't heard before. So when you look at
0: the timeline of this book and the bands that came through, was this scene destined to only have 10 years, do you think? Cause that's all it was. 81 to 91, basically. But before you guys answer that, let me tell you about something that DraftKings is doing with WWE. You know that WWE's biggest two-night event is this weekend in Tampa, and to celebrate, DraftKings, the official gaming partner of WWE, is putting you in the center of the action with $50,000 up for grabs this weekend. Each night of WrestleMania, you're going to have a $25 free-to-play contest. Playing for your share of the $50,000 is easy, too. Just download the DraftKings app, sign up using the promo code JERICHO and enter DraftKings free to play WrestleMania pool. Answer questions like who will make a surprise appearance and who is walking away victorious. The customers with the most correct answers will get their share of $50,000 in prizes that are up for grabs throughout the weekend. DraftKings has paid out over $7 billion to its players since 2012, so they know a thing or two about big paydays. Download the DraftKings app now and use the promo code JERICHO to enter the free WrestleMania prediction challenge with $50,000 up for grabs throughout the weekend. Just use the promo code JERICHO and enter two free $25,000 contests each night of WrestleMania only at DraftKings, the official gaming partner of WWE. Terms, conditions, and eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details Now, and don't forget, after WrestleMania ends on Sunday night, it's Jericho versus Austin on the Broken Skull sessions, only available on Peacock. Trust me, AEW and WWE combining for the first time ever. You're not going to want to miss it. And you're not going to want to miss all the great stories coming up right now with Rich Beanstalk and Tom Bozier. It's been nothing but a good time on Talk is Jericho. You're kind of going through like the high points of like from band band points of view it all kind of kicks off with quiet riot like you said kind of moves over to twisted sister a little bit then motley Crue comes then it goes to kind of a guns and roses thing then like you mentioned the last kind of last wave of nelson and firehouse and trickster and those sort of things when you think of, of those points was this music destined to only have these 10 years you know what I mean? Like how it started and how it ended, it came in like a bang and kind of went out with a little bit of a whimper. Is that just kind of how styles of music go? Did did hair metal, for lack of a better term, last longer than it should have? Was it the right amount of time? Because you talk to a lot of bands that, that if they would have come out a few years earlier, might have been 10 times bigger. I think
1: Steve Brown from Trickster, who's actually like a kind of a buddy, is Yeah, a good friend of mine too. He's he's got a really healthy perspective on it. I'm sure you've spoken to him about it too, where he'll be like, dude, I caught the wave. I had the best time of my life. I just wish it had lasted a little longer. Right. And um to answer your question though, I think it had run its course. I mean, it ran it had a longer run than a lot of other genres, I feel like. Like of of real I mean, of real success, you're talking, you know, like from Quiet Riot through, like, let's say, what's the last giant record, Dr. Feel good, It's a good run, you know? Right, right, right. But what's different about it, to me, is, and so it was, I think, in a in, at, at a point where bands were copying bands were copying bands, you know? We just had to do a playlist for something, and I did this playlist, and the first song is Motley Crue, Toast of the Town, which was their first single. And then the last song is Pretty Boy Floyd covering Toast of the Town. <laughs> and like that's where you see, you know, that the bands were influenced. Like you already had bands that weren't influenced by Zeppelin, they were influenced by Motley Crue. So it had kind of run its course. And Motley
0: Crue was still popular at the time. Yeah, so exactly. they're all sounding the mm-hmm. same, yeah. right? Yeah.
1: But what's different is like how this music was, and I mean it's a it's a new word and it didn't even exist when we were working on the book really. This music was cancelled. Like that is what's different is that by the time you get to like 1992 or 1993, right, 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 right. 94. It's like, it never happened. I mean, you probably lived through the same thing where it's just like, you didn't talk about these bands. They weren't really working. Anyone who worked with them, wasn't really working. The producers. That's amazing. yeah. Yeah. Everybody just got blown out. So I think that that's, what's unique is it had its, it had a normal arc, but then it just got like, people like had to pretend they weren't even in these bands.
0: That is a great point, especially when I remember in the book talking about Howard Benson, how he couldn't even find a gig working with anybody because no one wanted to work with the guy that had done Warrant or Winger or whatever it was. Cause, cause when you remember, like, that's one of the things that that I I initially, for me, I fought against grunge. Uh, Meanwhile, I was the perfect age for it. I was 21 when Nevermind came out. I mean, that's the, I should have been hooked by that. But instead, I rebelled against it because it was killing not just all the bands you mentioned. But if you look at that time frame, Maiden went down. Metallica was just at the very end of their of, the, of their run uh, before they hit the, the wilderness. And just all of those bands like were just gone. Or if they existed still, they, like Warrant was doing Ultra Phobic, which was a little bit more grungy. And there was no place for any of these guys to go.
2: Yeah, I think. And that's something that we wanted to explore in the book. That obviously the whole grunge thing and Nirvana and all that, but also to kind of explore about what else was going on at the time, because that was certainly a factor. But, you know, we talked to Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains and we talked to Kim Thiel from Soundgarden and like these guys in those early days, especially there's a lot of overlap.
0: Sure. They started as metal guys.
2: Mm -hmm. And they're playing shows together. You know, Alice in Chains is playing with Extreme and they're playing with Great White and Jerry Cantrell was in a band with Vinnie Chaz from Pretty Boy Floyd. Like these guys all know each other. And they didn't think of it as us against them, especially at the beginning. It was just like they were all just hard rock bands trying to make it. And me as a fan, that's kind of the way I felt. Like I loved mm-hmm. Nirvana when they came out and Soundgarden and all that, but I was still listening to my Motley Crue records. And like it was all just a different form of like the same thing in some ways. But then this thing happens where there really is this split and part of that is you know what we've always talked about with all the grunge stuff a part of it and some of the bands in the book make this point i think fred curry from cinderella is one of the guys he's like well you know in 1991 like a lot of us weren't doing our best work you know cinderella right. is, isn't putting out their best album you know or warren or a lot of these guys i mean and they're sort of changing already i mean the poison of 1990 is not the same as the poison of 1986. They look different, they sound different, you know, and that's before Nirvana even is, comes in as, as a mainstream force. So like these changes are happening already. And I think because of all these other things we're talking about, like it's been around for a while, the fans are growing up, there's this sort of loop going on with the new bands just being influenced by the, the bands that are still at the top of their game. So there's a lot of factors going on, and we tried to kind of explore all of those things in addition to the the Nirvana thing.
1: And just to quickly, to your point earlier, because it was so big, it fell really hard. These guys, there was nowhere for them to hide. Like, if you're mm-hmm. Kip Winger and Metallica's, like, your face has been everywhere, or if you're Gunner or Matthew Nelson, like, you can't, like, your face is, you you can't, like, just, like, like right. oh, you know, you can't reinvent yourself if you've been that or it's going to be really hard if you've been plastered on TV for years. But it was hard too like even the biggest of the big like Motley Crue with the John
0: Karabi album or or Poison with the Richie Cotton record um you know Native Tongue like they're trying to kind of blend in and morph and other bands like for example, you know Guns N' Roses or I just did a big podcast about the Police yesterday. They had so many different styles that, and they you know the Beatles and Zeppelin these bands were not allowed to do that. Like the crew was not allowed to do brooding, angry music, even though it was great because they're Motley Crue. It's girls, girls, girls. And Poison is talk dirty to me. You can't do a bluesier record. It's like they weren't allowed to even branch out to try and adapt.
1: I mean, there's a scene in our book where Brian Forsythe from Kicks um, after you know during like it's like 94 or something and he gets an audition for the wallflowers oh right and he goes in and like you know dude kicks i mean they weren't the biggest band of the era but they had like a number nine single and a platinum record like it's Mm -hmm. you know a great so and he goes in does not even mention that he was in kicks. right like like you can't even be like that's a matter of like dude you're in one of the best (laughs) live bands of the era and you're just like and um. Cher Ross from Vixen, the same thing. She was like out doing auditions after Vixen. She's like, I didn't mention that I was in Vixen for 10 10 years. And they weren't allowed to reinvent themselves. And I mean, it's partially too. Look, the Molly Crew you know, videos are great, but they, and they're awesome. And they're, they were fun when we were 15, but they are corralling women into like cages and stuff like oh, that. Dude, so, like, so like the, <laughs> there, there's a lot of smoking guns. Like it, they they left, there was like a lot of evidence if people wanted to be like, you can't just switch to being, you know, Thoughtful and serious,
0: but you know what, though, dude? I think it's more because of the music like this is not like That's it true. went from 1989 mm-hmm. to 2021. Like, nobody there was no cancel culture. Me too it was more just like you were in a successful rock and roll band from LA, you are now canceled because of your music, right?
1: That's true. yeah, true. they didn't
0: even care that they were saying, you know, show your tits and, yeah, and, right. and all that sort of stuff, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, when you guys did your interviews for your book, were they in person, were they over the phone? a mixture of both
2: mostly over the phone. I think there there were a few things in person. Um, there was a moment where, I, where I sort of backed red beach into a corner downstairs at a little <laughs> bar that he was playing with, with winger in, in Denver um, in order to get him and then eventually Kip on the phone. But, but the interviews didn't happen in person.
0: You have a lot of characters, you know, there's a lot of great stories and we can talk about some of them. Is there any great stories about when you're trying to nail these guys down for interviews? Like, You know, Nikki Six, not easiest guy to get on the phone, you know, slash all these types of guys. These are these are rock and roll Hall of Fame caliber guys. When you finally get them involved, was it easy to get them? Was it hard?
1: Were you calling them a few times? That sort of thing? I mean, it took me 18 months to get Sebastian Bach. (laughs) Really? I have like 18 months of emails of like, hi, just checking in again. Yeah. It's just Tom didn't... from the book, I, you know, whatever. He's like on tour. He, when he's on tour, he doesn't do any press when he's, you know, and just, again, you're not asking people to promote something same. Like, I think it took me quite a long time to get Ricky rocket from, mm. you know, like he was like, and then it's, fun, it's and then some, it's like, you're saying who's involved, who's involved, who's involved. And eventually you're sending these e- like a pitch letter for an interview and you like your list is long enough (laughs) that like people are going to be like all right screw it i'll I'll, you know Mm -hmm. i'll talk to this guy (laughs) and then some people we did have to rely on older interviews some people like i I, i'm not going to sit here and tell you we got everybody like some okay some of it's older interviews and then if that we really really had to you know we would go to archival but like you know rich got ozzy you know like he, he basically like you know, some of it was not through traditional means. Like he was interviewing Sharon and he's basically, can I talk to Ozzy too? And she's like, yeah, sure. You know,
2: (laughs) whatever you got to do, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So a lot of it was just that. And a lot of it was, you know, people that you're on the phone with saying like, Hey, yeah, I'll I'll send a text. I'll hook you up with this person. And then you kind of go from there. But yeah, like Sharon was another one. She was on board right from the beginning, but then it was just like, Every time we got to the interview day, it would be canceled because something came up. And these things can go on for six to eight months, you know, a year. And as long as you keep asking, then usually somebody would come through. You know, I mean, one, one funny one that sort of didn't come through was I was actually on the phone with Gene Simmons, who wound up not doing an interview for the book. Um, I was talking about something else, and then I told him all about the book. And, you know, kids are not necessarily that big a part of this, but they're sort of there in the ether. So Mm -hmm. I thought it'd be nice to get some quotes from him. And I told him all about it and he sort of paused and he was like, no offense, but I don't want to be in a book that also has crocus in it. (laughs) And I was like, well, you know, I was like, if it makes any difference to you, crocus is not in the book. (laughs) And, and he just goes, you know what I mean. <laughs> and that was that. So it's like, okay, well, you know, Kiss are sort of not the focus of the book anyway, but it's like you try and like some people are going to say yes, some people aren't. Great pull from Gene to use yeah. Crocus. Right.
0: <laughs> Let's talk about how you guys put this book together because it's a great, easy read, kind of modeled after the dirt. Uh, we'll get into it and more. But first, I want to tell you, we you can hear me telling some great stories about my career on Insight with Chris Van Vliet on YouTube. I'm sure you've seen at least one of Chris Van Vliet's interviews on YouTube. Chris is a TV host. He's interviewed pretty much everyone in the industry. But did you know he has a podcast, too? Like I mentioned, it's called Insight with Chris Van Vliet. He does a great job bringing out the best in his guests. He asks really good questions, and he's got a great, casual, friendly vibe to his show. It's not really a formal interview. It's more like two people just sitting around shooting the shit. I've been on his show a few times. He's also had The Rock, John Cena, Britt Baker, even my illustrious boss, Tony Khan. Uh, Van Vliet also has actors, musicians, and other interesting people from the entertainment industry. And in every episode, Chris always pulls out useful pieces of advice from his guests that you can apply to your own life. Chris Van Vliet's show was actually one of the first interviews I did after I signed to AEW in January of 2019 in the backseat of his car. Uh, yeah, trust me, it was, uh, it was all above board. No funny business. Check out Insight with Chris Van Vliet. You can listen to it wherever you're listening to Talk is Jericho right now. Find it on YouTube, Insight with Chris Van Vliet. For more information, go to ChrisVanVliet.com. That's Chris, V A N V L I E T.com. Damn, he's a sexy beast. Let's talk about how you guys put this book together because it's written, if anybody is listening that's read the dirt. It's kind of that sort of style of book, which makes it very easy to read. And it's very intriguing, like I said. And that's when I was – because that's when I was like, how are they going to do this? Because we've read them all before. But having the actual quotes and, and, you know, this guy says this. But you put them all in sections. And there's some great chapters and sections and ideas and thoughts about how you group these people together. How did you
1: organize that? That was sort of the whole ball game. Like kind of what we did is we follow – so the way the book is structured is it's following – Let's say it's 10, I'm making that number up, bands from 81 and then right. through time. And so kind of what we did was once we had done a bunch of interviews for the book, it be, it kind of became clear who was going to take which band and also who is obsessed with what. Like Like I was doing White Lion. There's no way I'm not doing White Lion, <laughs> you know. Rich loves all of the like sleazy LA stuff, like faster pussy cat, all that stuff. Like that's his that's his beat. But so what we did is we wrote all of the stories all the way through. So like we I wrote the whole White Lion thing and the whole Warren thing from beginning to end. Like we would write the whole story of the bands, and then and the other chapters, and then we kind of just sat there for three days straight at Rich's house. Chopping up the longer stories of the bands into the chapters so that they that, so that they flow from one to another and the reader isn't getting completely confused. So we mm-hmm. took we took the full narratives of each band and then sliced and diced them together so they seem thematically. Like I'm not exactly sure how we pulled it off, <laughs> <laughs> but that was how we did it. We wrote in like in one lane, and then we started switching lanes. And it was and it, it was tough. And some bands, because it's this oral history format like The Dirt, for every event, you need multiple people talking about it. And some bands that we talk to and that we apologize to in the back of the book kind of get left out because there was no context around. Mm-hmm. Like enough's enough, I interviewed both Chip and Donny, and it's like, there just wasn't enough because they're from Chicago. There's not enough stuff
0: fit, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so some people just got nuked, like dangerous toys, same thing. They kind of got nuked because there was just not enough stuff around them. So, but that's what we did. We just sliced up all of these things in a row and it somehow came together in a way that was, you know, entertaining, but it was, that was a lot. That was like very nerve wracking. What
0: are some of your favorite parts uh, of the book, uh, Rich, some of your favorite sections? The Dokken
2: stuff is all great just because those guys are completely insane
1: to begin yes. with.
2: And then also, just their, the way they relate to each other is just nuts. Explain. Yeah, well, people know if people who are into this stuff know the whole like Don Dokken and George Lynch are not buddies. Right. Even back in the day, it was like the one band where it was clear. Even, you know, Motley Crue, we know now, those guys have a lot of issues with each other. But in like nineteen eighty five, you were like, these dudes are like a gang. Like they, yes, they, they hang out together. Yeah. Even when they're not rocking on stage, right. like they must live together and like go swimming together. Yeah.
0: We always envision to be like the Beatles and Help, where they go to the four right. doors and they open the door and it all leads to one big giant apartment.
2: Yeah, <laughs> right. Like, like that's Motley Crue, you know? But yeah. like even in nineteen eighty five, you knew that like Don Dokken and George Lynch hate each other. Like it was just something that was sort of like out there in the world. But some of the stories that we get into in the book, and one in particular, and it's an example of like just sort of following a thread that you didn't necessarily know existed. I think it was started with Tom interviewing Tom Werman and him talking about producing Dawkins' Tooth and Nail record, uh, which is sort of their make and break record at the time. It's their first record for Elektra and all this stuff. Like there's a lot on the line. And it sort of comes out that in the studio, they spent – maybe more time trying to like, pull practical jokes on each other, in particular, on, on George Lynch, than they did like concentrating on their career, which, which seems like a crazy thing to do at that moment. And the story in a nutshell is like, you know, they, they create this sort of tape of Tom Werman without his knowledge of like, they're just capturing different things he says in the studio, and then splicing them together so that it comes out as like Tom Worman saying that like he wants to have sex with George Lynch. Right. Um, And they play this for George Lynch and George freaks out. And then the next time Tom gives him any sort of direction on his guitar solo, he just goes crazy on Tom Worman and wants to like fight him. And Tom Worman doesn't know what the hell is going on because he hasn't heard this tape. And they go really into detail in it, in the book. And it's not something we would have ever thought to ask had Tom Worman not said this, this thing to Tom, and then you start asking Don Dockin about it, and asking George Lynch, and asking Wild McBrown. and they all corroborate the story, and add to it, and it's a great story on its own. But then it's just like you start to think, like, what the hell are these guys doing? Like they are right. shot, you know. They're, and they're in the—they're on Electra, they're in the studio with Tom Worman. You know, this is their moment after years and years of struggle, and like this is what they're doing with it, right? And you know, they come out okay, but they also I think it, that's part of what speaks to the fact that they don't get to the level of a Motley or a Guns N' Roses. And maybe they could have like, not just because of an incident like this, but you, this is probably what was going on in their band the whole time.
0: Yeah, It's interesting too, because you hear a lot of stories, you know, Yeah, okay, well, Don ripped off the advance for me. Well, George took my song off the record and it's like, well, that's not how it happened. Well, that's not how it happened. And it's like, right. Especially for the docking camp, because they were always known as being dysfunctional, which is funny because they put a record out called that. (laughs) But I've had Don on Talk is Jericho and I've had George on Talk is Jericho with Michael Sweet, who you also interviewed uh, when they did their project. And Don was a great guest and George was probably the worst (laughs) guest I've ever had. Like, he was like, Michael, actually, because Michael and I are pretty tight. He called me. after, like, saying dude, I'm so sorry. Like, I apologize. I'm like, well, it's not your fault. <laughs> the guy just didn't want to say anything. And anything he said was just, like, shitty. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I get this. You know, yeah. you understand you're doing an interview. And if this is what you're getting, I can see how there's this dichotomy of personalities. And Don was great, like I said. And this is where you can kind of tell. Or, or you know, Sebastian and Snake and Rachel. I know why Snake and Rachel don't want to have anything to do with Sebastian anymore. He's a handful. He's impossible to get along with. And you can see these things kind of come out in the book. And It was just very interesting to hear everybody's perspective on everything.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's like, especially with like, it, it's, it's amazing what people were willing to do when they understood that they had achieved the chemistry that they needed to make it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like when you are reading our, our story of Skid Row, like it's not like suddenly, and it, again, this is not to say like, I'm not like, I am not bagging on, on Sebastian Bach. He would also admit he is an incredibly high energy sure. dude. Even now, like you, if you're in a room with him, I haven't been in a room with him, but I can imagine like you're kind of like pinned up against the wall because he's just like- Yeah, you can't get a word in edgewise, right. right. So like these, you know, they fly- sebastian bach in from canada like to to audition for skid row and they've been trying to find a singer for a year you know and and like they found this kid and he's not only is he an amazing singer but he's like beautiful yeah Do you know what i mean like he's, he's genetically created in a lab to be a <laughs> yes, rock star yeah <laughs> yeah yes. and like the first thing he does is like walk into snake sabo's house and go up to his mom and go hey i'm sebastian i got a nine inch dick you know what i mean and like it's just like (laughs) do you know what i mean and like that's like three minutes in to their career right but you realize like these guys and it's not the only it's not like a unique thing in this book but it's one of i think the recurring themes they know like this is the band you know like this is the band this is the chemistry and the same thing happens when C.C. DeVille, you know, there's two people auditioning for Poison. There's Slash. It com- really comes out to Slash and C.C. DeVille. That's such a great story. You know? <laughs> and Slash walks in. I mean, he th- Slash doesn't really want the gig. He was going to take the gig if he got it because Poison were big. And, and, well, and, and Plus, Slash has no gig. He wants, yeah. to, he wants yeah. to get yeah. a job, right. So he walks in to this thing. He's learned all the songs. And, like, you know, his quote in our book is, I played the shit out of those songs, you know. C.C. DeVille walks in. He hasn't learned any of the songs. (laughs) He's like, yeah, yeah, I got this song. Talk dirty to me. Check it out. You know, and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah." (laughs) And he plays them this song and and Ricky and Bobby from Poison are like, this is the guy. Yeah, this is the guy. And Brett is like, um, I think immediately. Like I, I can't stand this guy, <laughs> you know. Like, and and, and Brett is like, meat like, let's get let's get Slash, let's get Slash. This dude Slash is awesome, and it's that. But they somehow know because people are like, can you imagine what Poison would have been like with Slash? And, and the answer to the question is, no, you can't because we wouldn't be talking about Poison. Right? Like they you. wouldn't have made it. Mm-hmm. that's yeah.
0: exactly right. You know, as Slash even said, CC comes in with like a pink blazer and you know high-heeled shoes and I come in my moccasins yeah. and yeah in you know, a leather jacket or whatever but but you, you notice because obviously band and you guys know this we all know this it's all about chemistry it's like a hockey team or a football team the guy that might be the flashiest might not fit in best with the band and the thing with Sebastian too that I felt very interesting as well is that he in his mind when he was doing all of these things that made the news from you know, the bottle incident and the, the the homophobic shirt that he was wearing. He said that he was reading an article that said the new bad boys of rock and roll. And he's like, I was never told this I was never consulted about this. So if you want a bad boy, here it is. That was part of the image at that point in time. And it's almost like it's like wrestling. The idea is to make it look like you're hurting somebody without hurting somebody. The idea was to make it look like you're a bad boy without actually being one. But I don't know if a lot of those guys could do that. And we could see in the, you know, all the drug addicts and breakups and fights and issues that happened. You know, I think Bon Jovi was probably the best at maybe kind of looking like some kind of a a bad boy or at least some kind of a lascivious, you know, banging all the strippers and living the rock and roll lifestyle that really didn't do anything wrong. But other than that, the rest of them kind of fell right all into that trap.
2: I think so. And yeah, I mean, Sebastian, you look at him when all that is happening, he's like 20 years old. Yeah, exactly. I mean, think about, exactly. think about Good what point. our, you know, sort of mind frame. Well, a lot
0: was. of those guys too, mm-hmm. right? A lot of those guys were in their early 20s when they started making big money.
2: Right. And so, yeah, I mean, Sebastian in particular, like he was supposed to be this dangerous, like on the edge guy and like he took it a little too far sometimes. But he, how how do you know where that line is? And also, he's not really thinking about where that line is. Like he's there because he really is this dude. The same way mm-hmm. like, Axel Rose is really that dude, and you see that in the book as well. Like, Even when they're just right. playing the clubs, like, he is a volatile, real deal type of guy. I mean, Duff talks in the book about the first time he ever sees him perform, and he's like, you know, it reminded me of when I saw, like, Black Flag with Henry Rollins for the first time. Right. It's like he was that intense. Um, so, a lot of these guys, what they were celebrated for could also get them in a lot of trouble. And it wasn't, some of them were more calculating about it than others, but a lot of them, it was just like, this is the way they were living. And you put them on a stage and you put them in a situation where they have everything that they can want, you know, or could ever imagine, like they're going to kind of go crazy with it. And that's not, that's certainly not something that is particular to 80s hard rock.
0: Yeah. It still happens, you know, athletes Mm -hmm. and, you know, anybody that sees fame and money at a very young age, like you mentioned earlier, Rich, remember what we were like. As 20-year-old kids, you know? You also talk about the culture on the Sunset Strip of flyering. And you've got a great story about Warrant and Guns N' Roses and flyering. Duff McKagan was about to beat up Warrant. He's not just a joke teller. But we're going to hear all about that. But first, I want to say thank you to fellow rock fans, Geico. They love music as much as we do. They also love making life just a little easier for you. I know everyone listening either owns or rents a home for the most part. I know it's hard work, but you know it's easy. Bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's insurance or your renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you can save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Something that's very interesting, too, and I'm a big fan of "Decline of the Western Civilization Part 2. I've had Penelope on the show. It's a great documentary. I just watched it again the other day, actually, after reading reading your book. Something that people will never understand is the culture on the Sunset Strip of flyering. Explain oh. exactly what that was and just how important and integral that was to making it in LA at that time.
1: It, I mean, it was everything because there was no, imagine a time with no Facebook, right. and no Instagram, <laughs> and where there you are competing with 5,000 other bands on the strip the way that you know the bands advertised themselves is that they put up eight by ten posters for their bands and they did it everywhere and it was not just it was a war not just because they were competing but because there was strategy i mean we have the guys from warrant explaining that they had gridded out maps of la <laughs> you know because they were going to hit every phone pole You know, they're like, we would take this quadrant and then that quadrant to the beach and then here there. And whoever got the most flyers up got the most recognition. And people were, you know, going over each other's flyers. They would like tear down other people's flyers. And going back to Warren, there's a thing in our book where they make the cardinal error of putting their gig flyer over a Guns N' Roses flyer. And it might have even been a, for a Guns N' Roses show that had already happened, but like, still, they put their branding over Guns N' Roses branding, and you know, on their flyers that show like our gig, we're playing Starwood or whatever, there's a phone number for their hotline, which is probably like an answering machine at their girlfriend's house or whatever. But like one day, they're checking their hotline, and it's like, hey, this is Duff McKagan. <laughs> you guys ever poster over us again? We're gonna come kick your ass. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it was like. I mean, you are do, – it's do or die. <laughs> and then it's revealed in the book, which one of the funniest little tiny details is that the reason Poison was able to put up more flyers than everybody else and therefore dominate was that C.C. DeVille's mother owned a copy shop.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I know – Duffy's he's he's, he's another good friend of mine he actually calls in a joke every Friday it's like the worst dad jokes it's called the Duff McKagan joke of the week and he's such a different guy now but once in a while he'll text me something or say something or like you need me to come out there and fight somebody or like and I'm like (laughs) this is a guy that used to you know these guys were ready to fight they would fight anybody you know to to protect the
2: brand right that was kind of part of the scene too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, these guy and it's funny like the the warrant flyer probably was something ridiculous where it said like sex police on it or something, yeah. you know, like knowing the way they were. Melch in your mouth, not in your hand. <laughs> right. <laughs> or and in then your, Doug yeah. sees this and he's probably like, "What the fuck? Yeah. But yeah, and and that's another thing you get when you read the book, like just the competition and there's a lot of camaraderie and the bands talk about that as well, but like you're in a in a space especially in the mid-80s on the strip. Where well, there's like probably 40,000 bands and they all look more or less the same. And they're all competing for the same eyeballs. And like, you got to do whatever you can to, to make your band stand out. It's interesting. This, this is like a little later in the era, but Stevie Rochelle from tough talks about in the late eighties when he's kind of starting out and they're trying to make a name for themselves. And, and it gets into this whole conversation about pay for pay to play, mm. which most people, you know, everybody just hates pay-to-play and like it's it's inauthentic and all this kind of type of thing. But he's like, actually, I didn't see it as a bad thing. You know, he's like, we were in such competition with everyone. If you want that opening slot ahead of warrant at the Troubadour or whatever, like you should be a band that could sell some tickets and you should be a band that is confident enough in yourself that you'll lay the money out ahead of time because you know you'll make the money back. So he's like, I didn't see it as a bad thing. He's like, whatever you know, you had to have that sort of confidence in yourself to be like, yeah, I'll sell those tickets. Like I'll put up the money up front in order to do it. So it was an interesting sort of take on it, but it also showed like, you know, the, the competition was so fierce in Mm. those days. And there was just so many, I mean, it's great. There were so many fans, but there were so many bands as well.
1: I mean, and that's sort of like the, the, one of the beautiful or really great things I think about, The decline of western civilization part two is that it shows you You can see it the lot and the line between and this is why we're you know even getting back to our chemistry thing like the line between like a band like odin that doesn't make it or you know the bands that almost made it most of them didn't suck they just weren't great and like you needed every little inch of every little advantage to be the band that made it. You know,
0: it's interesting too, because even talking about, you know, get out of out of the Strip and into the arenas, y- you forget, like I said, I mean, obviously we always remember Motley Crue and Bon Jovi and all that sort of thing. And and then there was kind of the second wave of bands that were, were hovering at that level. Rat was an arena band. Uh, we mentioned, I mean, Poison kind of was a little bit bigger. Cinderella, another great example of a band that played, they made it all the way to the arenas. And I remember going to see Cinderella on the heartbreak station tour in Calgary when I was living there. And it was in the saddle dome in Calgary where the flames play. And there was probably, I don't know, 3000 people in a place that held 20. And you can see where you just like, ah, they almost got there and they just didn't quite make it. Why do you think those bands didn't go the extra mile to become, you know, that legendary status of Motley Crue uh, or Bon Jovi? I think,
2: Sometimes, I mean, it's sometimes it's just the intangible factor, but even when you look at a band like Cinderella, who you mentioned, who were almost there and mm-hmm. were super talented and actually have really great songs, there is some discussion in the book about how, you know, Tom Keeper still as an onstage presence right. isn't the same as, you know, Vince Neil or Brett Michaels point. or any of these guys. And I think it's also talked about in the book how offstage – he was sort of like, he went home at the end of the day and, yeah. like, and he was a normal, he wasn't a lunatic. And actually it helped to be a lunatic in those days. Um, so I think you had bands like that where it sort of goes back to what even Tom was saying about that sort of, you know, it has to be the exact right mix of people. You know, this that's an example of like, Cinderella actually kind of was the right mix of people, but even when you were just missing that one little factor, maybe that's enough to to not put you over the top in the same way
1: no their manager yeah larry Mazer. he says you know like look he didn't want to be a faint he wasn't he didn't he wasn't dating an actress he didn't crash a car tom Kiefer, you know he and so that was it but that's a, that's a really in our book like that the, that heartbreak station tour is really like we use it because you obviously we can't cover every Tour in the book, but the Heartbreak Station tour and the amount of money that Cinderella spends to build that set, and the fact that they go out on, and, the, and you saw it, they go out yes. on this tour with like 10 trucks. And, and this is at the end, this is like very symbolic for in our book for the whole end of the era. And even their manager at the time, Larry, is telling Tom Kiefer, like, dude, it's too big, it's too big, it's too big. And he's like, you know, and Tom Kiefer's like no, Molly Cruz has got the drum set that flips over, and this that the other thing. I want to be as big, which is completely uh, like a very understandable human impulse. But when that tour goes out, and within like a couple weeks, they're like sending trucks home, mm. they're sending the stage home, they're sending the this home. That's where you really see in the book this era crumbling under the weight of its own sort of like yeah. You know, pretensions. Like they just, they just go out and they, they just don't have the goods. And it's just like, you know, it's so interesting because you hear, you hear that. I remember reading in D. Snyder's book when he talked
0: about the come out and play tour for Twisted Sister, which is the one after Stay Hungry. And same thing. They had this big stage with the. It looked like I think Cinderellas looked like a, a New Orleans porch, and <laughs> Twisted Sisters look like a Brooklyn ghetto, like a back alley. And they, like three, or four shows in, they just have to cancel. That must be so disheartening for a band because, like you said, I understand you got to spend money to make money. And it worked for Iron Maiden. It worked for other bands that went bigger than they should have, than they were ready to get to the next level. But for Cinderella, when it doesn't happen, you're probably thinking, well, that's it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And the, the Cinderella story is, I mean, it, it's funny too. It's one of my favorite stories in the book because it's, it's very funny, but it's like very subtly funny. And even on that Heartbreak Station tour, I mean, I think it starts off. They're talking about doing the record and it's about them kind of getting back to their roots and like, you know, acoustic guitars and like stones and like just doing this very rootsy sort of back porch thing. And then like immediately the next quote is like, so we hit the road and we have 10 trucks. And then like, you know, Tom (laughs) Kiefer is (laughs) going to come down from the the rafters and the the Cinderella sign is going to come up. It's going to explode into flames. And it's like completely the exact opposite of what their intention was. (laughs) But you just get caught up in the moment. But it also shows, like, I think you're so, even though that's 90, 91, like, you're so sure of your success that you're probably shocked when it doesn't work out that way. Especially a band like Twisted Sister come out and play. You're talking about, like, 1985, 1986, when there's no reason to think that you're going to have anything other than massive multi-platinum success. And then when it doesn't happen, like, a lot of times you're just, I mean, there's not necessarily even a reason for it. Like, Twisted Sister should have remained big. I mean, it wasn't the greatest record, but you know in 1986 like the fact that it all fell apart is probably pretty shocking
1: mm-hmm. yeah.
0: well I mean like we said it happens I mean I think if Cinderella you know the people say if they would have come out a few few years earlier if you're talking about that heartbreak station era Cinderella if they would have come out a couple days a couple of years later I mean they're basically the black crows with like a hair metal past so to speak but there was a lot of bands that that happened to you know. Um, you mentioned uh, some of the stories. That, like what, what are some of your
1: other favorite stories from the book that stand out to you? For me, the one that like is the best, and it's another Tom Worman story, but I remember doing an interview with Tom Worman who produced, so for for people who don't spend their time looking at the back of records, <laughs> like us and, like yeah. he produced, he like shattered the devil theater of pain, girls, 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 and then uh, Poison open up and say, uh, he did a lot of the rest of Yeah, everything. And he's like a very dry, he, he has a bed and breakfast in Massachusetts now. That's what he does. <laughs> like like he got completely out of the business. He's very dry. And my favorite story was, he's talking about making Poison open up and say, uh, and he's like, I liked Poison. They worked very hard. But the solo to Nothing But a Good Time took all day. And I'm like, why? And he's like, well, CC Deville kept going into the bathroom and doing something that I believe involved combustible cocaine. And it's like, <laughs> and he's like, and it took eight hours. And I'm like I could just see, it. and then he's like talking about CC C. Deville, like the first time they meet, going, Mr. Werman, Mr. Werman. I hear you like to do drugs. And like to me, like the the CC because I'm I love CC Deville. Like I think that he's my favorite band is cheap like one of my favorite bands is Cheap Trick. Right. And so to me, like Rick Nielsen, like CC Deville is the next Rick Nielsen. Like he's just like amazing character and like so much energy there. So hearing that the solo to the song that the book is named after all day because basically the guy was freebasing to be like, I called rich afterwards. I'm like, you're not going to believe this. (laughs) It's very apropos. It fits perfectly. Exactly.
2: But I have to, I have to add that. And I mean, Tom interviewed Ricky rocket as well, but the thing I like in the book, the next line after that is Ricky rocket going, but it's a great solo. Yeah, (laughs) And it is, you know, it is.
0: All right, Rich, we'll hear your favorite story from your book, Nothing But a Good Time, next. But first, a friendly reminder from the folks at NHTSA. I know it can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or running late, to find yourself at a railway crossing waiting for a train. If the signals are going, the train's not even there yet, you may feel tempted to try and sneak across the tracks. I'm going to tell you right now, don't do it ever, because the naked eye trains appear to be further away and moving slower than they really are, and they can't stop quickly. Even if the engineer hits the emergency brakes right away, it can take a train over a mile to stop. Think about that, one mile to stop. By that time, it's too late, and the result is a potentially deadly crash. The point is you can't know how quickly the train will arrive. The train can't stop quickly. Even if it sees you, it could end in disaster. If the signals are on, the train is on its way, and you just need to remember one thing, stop, because trains can't. All right, what about you, Rich? Any other favorite stories from your book, Nothing But A Good Time?
2: I think, for me, I mean, I... The whole Skid Row story, to me, is a great story, just from from beginning to end. Because in addition to the Sebastian Bach element, all the dudes in the band are just hilarious guys. Yeah, which you probably know. I mean, Snake is great, and Rachel's great, and Scotty's great, and we have Rob Fusco's in there as well. The fact that we got all five guys on record was was cool because a lot of them don't talk to each other anymore, obviously. Right, but they all tell this story in such a great way and like what tom mentioned about that first night where sebastian's there and he comes into snake's house and talks about his, his the size of his dick to snake's mom is great but then they go on to tell in detail the the story of the entire first night together like that's how it starts <laughs> but you get all these great details because then like scotty's talking about how sebastian's like stomping around the house and like going through cans and cans of aquanet and then like finishing them and then throwing them over his shoulder behind him. And then like they go out (laughs) to this club mingles in Saraville, New Jersey. And like they go on stage and they play and it's awesome. But then afterward they're in the parking lot and someone says something Sebastian and he starts like fighting the dude. And so, and you know, and Scotty's like, dude, you're from Canada, you're in Jersey, like, what are you doing? You know, but like, all of a sudden, they're in this fight in a parking lot. They get him out of there, then they go to a white castle. And Rob Afuso is like, someone says something about the way we, that we look. He's like, fists start flying again. So, like, now they're in another fight later on. And like, then the cops are coming, they all jump in the car, they get out of there. And it's like, this is their first night together. Right. And it's like, all this crazy stuff happens, but they all tell the story and it's just, it's just wild and it's hilarious. Another great
0: story. And it's one of the, one of the classic moments in, 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 in rock and roll history that you could never do in this day and age, because the situation has changed is going to Russia for the make a difference foundation, (laughs) or also known as the make a different drink foundation kind of recapsulate that story that involves probably five or six, the craziest bands of all time on a private jet flying from America to Russia to do a charity show for for like <laughs> anti-drinking and drugs.
1: <laughs> I mean, that story is so wild because you've always heard about like this, that this plane ride was completely insane because they stopped, you know, Ozzy gets on and this, that, the other thing. And there's there was actually stuff like, you know, some people. The one thing that people didn't do in our book, which was very smart of them, nobody ever says they see somebody else doing drugs, right? Like they were very, but like that every everyone for that. And then, but like the thing is, like then they get to Russia and they're like that whole thing is so wild because you forget like that this what the Soviet Union was like, in like probably in 1989. Like they get there and they're the biggest rock bands in the world, but they bring all of their own food. Yeah, They bring all of their own toilet paper. Like they bring everything that they need because they, and then they end up like the nicest hotel that they can find is still like you turn the lights on and cockroaches scatter everywhere, you know? And it's, so it's like a completely crazy scene. They're being followed around by the KGB. The Russian bikers are all there to see Ozzy and encircling the, encircling the hotel and chanting for him. It's like this, Really, actually, that is a movie that needs to be made. Is is sure because yeah, it's, it's Ozzy, it's Motley Crue, it's
0: Scorpions, it's Bon Jovi, and and Skid Row.
1: Yeah, and also, I mean, you see there, like a lot of the ego and the business side of it too, because there's like this behind the scenes struggle of who's gonna who's gonna close the show, right. and so you've got like Ozzy and Bon Jovi you know, and Motley Crue and they're kind of like all managed by the same guy. But like, again, like, like what we were saying, these people are colleagues, yeah. but like, they're still like that when it comes down to like, who's closing this show, the gloves come off, you know, and it's like, I'm closing the show. No, you are. And then it's like, and there was, you know, these bands, there was a lot of ego and there was a lot uh, at stake and a lot of people throwing their weight around, you know? Back who, then, it was who, big business. Who did end up going on last? It's Bon Jovi because of MTV. Ah, even though yeah. Ozzy was way more popular, right? Yes. That's what happens, right, Rich? Correct me if I I'm wrong. I think
2: so. I, I, I'd say that there might be a thing where the person who closes is not the person. Like on MTV, they show it as a different closer, but I'm actually not sure. flopped it. It's yeah, either yeah, Bon Jovi or Ozzy, I think. Oh no no, it's definitely not Ozzy. So I think you're right, Tom. I think it is Bon Jovi.
1: And, and apparently, the whole time in Russia, all the kids want is Ozzy. Right? <laughs> like they, like they, they, they're like watching Bon Jovi. They're like, "What is this? This is not Ozzy." They're just like Ozzy oh, because the Black Sabbath records had been sneaking into Russia, right, for the Soviet Union for for twenty years. So like Ozzy is a true legend. But that story is just amazing.
2: Yeah.
0: There's some great stories of Ozzy and Motley Crue on the uh, 84 tour that are pretty crazy <laughs> as well.
2: <laughs> yeah, and that's, you know, like the, the sort of the, the Nikki 6 Ozzy thing with like the snorting of the ants and the licking up of the, of the urine. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that's like, you know, rock and roll lore now in the same way as like Zeppelin with the mud shark. But the thing that's great about in the book too is you get these other perspectives. A lot of the story is told through the perspective of Jakey Lee, who we talked to for the book a few times and who was Ozzy's guitarist at the time, obviously. And he tells the story in such a dry, like reporting sort of way. And he's also so like disgusted by it at the same (laughs) time. Like he's like so kind of fed up with it. And so it's really funny to hear it from his perspective. And uh, and actually there's some stuff we even didn't include because it was a little bit over the top, and we were like, Well, we don't know if that's exactly what happened, and we're not, and it, people could get in more, trouble here more
0: over the top than snorting ants and yes. licking yes.
2: each other's piss. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah, so, <laughs> it's I tell you something, so <laughs> we were like, That was okay, but then other stuff, yeah. we were like, We can't print yeah. that. But even just the way he's sort of reporting on the fact of like Ozzy's trying to get in shape, so he thinks he's in good shape, then so he's challenging Nikki, you know, to a push up contest, and then. You know, Jake's like, Nikki did like 10 push-ups. He's like, Ozzy did one. You know, and it's just like, it's so insane what's going on that it's just like, it's the story that, that just keeps on giving, really. <laughs> yeah, exactly, that tour is. There's so many
0: characters in this book. Who were some of your favorite guys to interview that were great storytellers? Bobby, uh,
1: oddly, Bobby Rock of Nelson. Oh, wow. Is he's he, His book is actually really good. Um, yeah, I've read it. He is amazing on the phone and the way he describes because he wasn't one of the nelson brothers the madness of that tour and like you know he's like yeah on that tour like basically you could go to the hotel and if you wanted to hook up that night there were girls trolling the hallways looking for us and you literally had to open the hotel room door peek your head out and like count down to 10 seconds and like somebody would come around. it. But like, there's something about there's people who know how to talk. Right. Sure. I don't know if you know Gunner Nelson, but like, yeah. he, he too, like he's when he's talking about like, you know, poison and how poison like their, their first initial marketing thing was that they, they catered to the bigger, bigger girls because they would be right. the most loyal fans. And he's just like, it was, it was the best marketing Floyd I've ever seen. They were geniuses, you know, but there's people who just know like, like where you're doing the interview and you're like, like checking off boxes. You're like, this yeah. is gold. This is gold. This is gold. This stays in amazing, you know? So oddly, they, they were two of the best. And also like Ricky Rocket was very honest and, and forthcoming and great.
2: What do you think, Rich? I would say two guys that I, that immediately come to mind. One is Stevie Rochelle from Tough, hmm. who I don't know if you've ever spoken to him before, but he's this guy who like, beyond having been a part of the scene is like just a super fan like doesn't just know everything about all the bands that we know but like can t- we'll talk to you about the difference between the band's paradise and pair a dice you know who were both <laughs> on the strip in the late 80s and like he just knows all this stuff about every layer of band and can really talk about it in a very in a very knowledgeable and just detailed way in in addition to be able to tell his own story, which which has a lot of interesting details to it. So, he was one guy who talked to several times and would have just, you know, loved to include, we just tried to include him as much as possible, as much as you can also include that perspective. And then the other guy is Tamey Down from Fester Pussycat, mm. who is just everything you would imagine and hope that Tamey Down from Faster Pussycat would be, which is like he is the living embodiment of Faster Pussycat music, which is like he is raw and open and sleazy and sort of and funny and was also like a total seamster, Like he was there, you know, in addition to the Faster Pussycat stuff, he's with, he's hanging out with the Guns N' Roses guys. He's starting the Cat House with Ricky Rackman. And we go super deep into what that whole scene was like and he is just a guy who is very open about what he was doing, what his intentions were, what he was after and you know makes no apologies for any of it. And like you ask him a question and he's going to give you an answer and it's going to be a great answer.
0: Last few questions for you. Now that the book has been released and uh you have all these guys included, have you gotten some great feedback not only from the fans but from the guys that were included in the book?
1: We have and you know it's really super gratifying like I like I got it because I, I, I interviewed him a bunch of times from the book but like you know Brian Forsyth from Kicks, it really because I because you take up a lot of, like I interviewed him a bunch for this and like you end up taking up a lot of a person's time right You know, and so like to have them be like oh I really I really enjoyed it and like Rich got an email from Warren G. Martini saying that we got it right that's you know? cool most we haven't gotten we're, I'm waiting for the one <laughs> that's that's like what did you, you know, but I think that people are really happy that we did a, like a real serious, I mean, not serious. Like it's serious. It's a funny book where it's funny, but like that we really went all in on this music. And it like, as a fan since the age of 15, like feeling that like the artists in there appreciate the book in general is like, it's probably actually the most gratifying. Like we've, it's selling really well and all that stuff. And that's great. Like we, Maybe New York Times bestseller list, but, like, to me, the email from Warren Demartini, <laughs> like, it's
2: like, yes! Yeah. No, I mean, that that kind of stuff means a lot because we weren't writing this book to please them. Like, we needed to be honest about what happened. And, like, we all know, like, a lot of these stories, like, these bands were nuts and they did a lot of stuff that maybe they don't want to talk about all the time. But everybody has been so supportive and that's been great. It's also been a little bit of a, of a relief. You know, like Scotty Hill wrote to us, you know, he's just like, dude, I can't believe like you guys talk about Garden State music, you know, like the, mm-hmm. the guitar shop that they all used to work at. Like, I think a lot of them, their minds are blown to like see this stuff from this their past in print because it's not the kind of stuff that they even talk about in interviews all right. the time. So, it's just like, it's been cool to get that feedback. You know, like Dee Snyder has posted about it a lot. Brett posts about it. You know, he's posted about it a few times. So like to see the support from these guys when we were really just trying to be super honest in how we told the story has been, has been a nice outcome. Yeah. Like I said, you guys really nailed it.
1: I've
0: told a lot of people to check it out and read it. It, it, it goes by so fast. It's a big book. You could knock somebody out with it if you didn't, <laughs> if, if, they're, if, they, if you don't like them, but it's well worth reading. La- last question for you. It's a two-parter. Who do you feel the biggest band from that era is? And who's your favorite
1: band from that era that you included in the book, Tom? Hmm. I think the biggest band is probably the Crew. I mean, like of like to me, I cuz I feel that's specific to that era. I mean, like maybe Bon Jovi was bigger in some weird way like in terms of like but to me the Crew is the one that's like has the longest, biggest, most successful run and still means the most mm. today. Like they're the ones that have come to embody this music. Like mm-hmm. I think when people, like if you're like, what did you do a book about? I'm like, oh, it's about like, and they don't know anything. I'm like, bands yeah, like Motley Crew, And they're like, oh yeah. Now we you know, know. Exactly. Like, you know, my favorite, oddly, I mean, I just can't, for me, the thing that got me, blew my mind and got me into it. The first two Poison records mm. are really the records that like, where I like, and specifically like the, the talk dirty to me video, that was the moment when I saw that video with CC, with all of the guitars down the like that, like literally, I think put me on the track that I've been on since then. So to me, I, I will always go down swinging for poison.
2: (laughs) For me, you know, biggest, maybe I guess you could also make the the argument that it's Guns N' Roses. They're the band, I mean, they're certainly mm-hmm. a big part of this book, but people always argue about, well, whether or not they're even part of the scene. You know, Musically, I guess you can have that conversation, but clearly when you read this book, like they were there and they were yeah. firmly entrenched in yeah, it, like they're yeah, a huge yeah, yeah. part of it. So them, and then if not them, I'd, I'd agree with Tom, like Motley Crue are the quintessential band. Right. Of this era. And like really, you know, the our book doesn't start with Motley Crue, but Motley Crue is the beginning of, in my mind, the 80s Sunset Strip thing. Like it starts mm-hmm. with Motley Crue appearing. And everything that happens after that, Motley Crue do it bigger and better and crazier than any yeah. band that comes after there them. Really and is. and and every band that comes after them talks about Motley Crue. And so their their impact and their influence is can't be overstated. I mean, as far as my favorite band growing up it was motley Crue. like the way tom was when he saw the talk dirty to me video was the way i was when i saw that looks the kill video like <laughs> yeah. i was seven and it was like instant connection i was like this is these guys are the the coolest guys i've ever seen in my life i didn't even notice that there were women in the video like none of that <laughs> right you know none of that even registered in my seven-year-old you know lizard brain but like <laughs> but the guys and the way they looked and the costumes and all of that, it was just like instant impact. And for the rest of the 80s, like they were my band.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm going to say the biggest I'll go something different, because like you mentioned, crew and Guns N' Roses, you can't deny it. I think included in your book who's not really an L.A. guy. But if you're talking about Ozzy, I think that's still the top of the food chain for pretty much almost mm-hmm. everybody. Uh, at least from an influential standpoint. And like you said, when you go to Russia in a stadium, I still think Ozzy would probably get the biggest reaction to this day. Absolutely. And favorite band. I mean, the first three crew records blew my mind. I'm a huge Striper fan. I love that band. Uh, I love Skid Row. So that's why this book was perfect for me. And there's millions of people like me that will, that will enjoy this, uh, enjoy this tome. Uh, it's a great job, guys. You did, you did a hell you. of a job. And I know what it's like. I've written five books myself. It's not easy to do. So this is the fun part when you get to talk about it and have everybody tell you how great you are for writing it. Yeah. <laughs> totally, yeah. <laughs> Thank,
1: you. Thank you so much for having us. This was yeah. really awesome. It was great. It was Thank you, guys. Great I look honor. forward
0: to uh, future books. And uh, uh, like I said, I will be recommending this to everybody. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Talk to you later.